Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more information and content, or to connect with our worldwide Liquid Church community, log on to liquidchurchonline.com. music going on there. I love it. It's kind of like kind of Christian dance. Biblically, yes. Realistically, no. Uh, and I'm glad you're here for our Frequently Asked Questions series. We're t- actually coming to some of these hot topics that have come up uh, by people in our community or joining us online. Today, we're going to get at a whole host of what I would call lifestyle issue. What I think are ba- best summed up this question someone sent, why do Christians love to hate on people who drink, smoke, or get two t- tattoos? Sorry, a little tongue-tied there. Uh, the Bible, this is the best part, they kind of elaborate. They say the Bible preaches against drunkenness sometimes, yet Jesus' first miracle was making wine for people at a wedding. The Bible doesn't seem to say anything about smoking, yet Christians get their knickers in a knot, must be British, uh, and go into judge mode when they encounter someone who smokes. What's the big deal with tattoos, secular music, or movies? Um, another person wrote, isn't gluttony a sin? It's one of the seven deadlies, but you never hear about it in church. And then they wrote, as an aside... Why does it seem like all the lard butts in most churches are usually the most judgmental? Woo! Little, little zinger there. And uh, bitterness aside, there were a lot of people asking what I would call lifestyle questions. Things like, can a Christian drink beer or wine? How much is too much? Uh, what about smoking? How about pot? There are actually a bunch of those. Um, are tattoos wrong? What about piercings and other body art? If I get them and I kind of defiling the temple, that's my body. You know, you take it a step further, right? If like tats are okay and then piercings, what about plastic surgery? What's the progression? Are there boundaries? Someone said, what are the biblical boundaries for dating? How far can I go with my girlfriend? And then my personal favorite, someone asked, can I listen to music like 50 Cent? Is it art, entertainment, or corruption? And I think we all know the answer to that. 50 Cent doesn't technically qualify as music, so you just enjoy. Uh, that's, uh, oh, hey. Hey, whoa. Some of the gangsters in a, you know, are like, whoa, easy there. Uh, this is kind of a fun topic, because depending on the type of home you grew up in, these issues will either make you feel conflicted or confused. Conflicted. If you grew up in kind of a religious bubble like I did, skewed towards legalism, these cause a little bit of agita, like, oh boy, I don't know. Confusing, because some of you may be like, you know, what's the big deal? I got, you know, tats, piercings, and I cracked a cold one before I came in. Is there a problem here? Um, that's the fun of having a community that is comprised of both overchurched people as well as unchurched folks. We know it's going to be messy, and together we get to bring all our issues to the table and work 
through them in light of what God's truth says and who Jesus has revealed God to be. And so today we're going to look at the Bible and learn a new way to think about these issues. Um, let me first begin by taking you on a little trip down legalism lane. Um, tell you my story. Uh, as I've told you, I grew up in a pretty conservative religious household. My parents were Christians. Their parents were believers. And along with my brother, we figured out pretty quickly what was expected of us as good Christian boys. Um, in terms of music, classical music was always on in our house on the radio. My parents actually told us the radio just had one station, WFME Family Radio. Yeah, a blast from the past. So while my friends listened to, you know, The Stones or Journey, we got the Gaither Trio. That's how it rolled in our house. My folks would play like hymns, classic stuff, like George Beverly Shea. And we weren't really exposed to any secular music, honestly, until my brother reached high school and discovered Kiss. Uh, and when I first heard Kiss, I'm like, I want, you know, I want to rock and roll all night and party every day. I'm like, yeah, okay, let's play that. Um, this was music never heard in our house before, and suffice to say, you know, you know grease paint and uh, demon tongues uh, weren't exactly welcomed by my folks or the church that we attended. And that was considered a corrupting influence, the devil's music. In fact, one summer night, I remember our youth group hosted a speaker who invited all the kids at church to bring their records the next weekend so we could smash them together. And it was this big, like, wrestling match in our house. My brother's, like, precious kiss collection, even Peter Frampton. Uh, but in the end, Jesus triumphed over Gene Simmons. And my brother smashed all his kiss records. Praise glory. It was an amazing moment. Uh, I was a younger brother, so I got the message real quick. And I didn't actually purchase my first secular album until I was a freshman in high school. I remember going to Sam Goody at the Willowbrook Mall. And I plunked down my $3 in defiance and bought Kenny Loggins' Footloose. This is my breakout moment. Kind of ironic. I'm serious. Kind of ironic because the movies, of course, is about this worldly kid who clashes with this kind of legalistic Christian community. Um, needless to say, we did not have alcohol or wine in our house growing up. Uh, only a little bit of sherry that was, I was told, is solely for cooking purposes. Let me be clear about that. Never drinking. My parents didn't drink. Their parents didn't. We had a dry house. I was never really tempted, honestly, growing up from a young age. I you know, did the math real quick. It's like a, you know, a single drop here is certainly not worth an eternity in hell. So uh, you might crave a cold one right now, but you're going to be thirsty in the fire down there. That's how that went. So we looked down our noses at, at people who drank. If they claimed to be Christians, we said, oh, they're carnal Christians, you know, real fleshly. So the only concession my parents made to the culture uh, was one New Year's Eve, I remember this, when they purchased uh, a, a bottle of sparkling apple cider. So we'd have something to pop the bottle, you know, and toast at midnight. And I think they still regret that liberal compromise uh, to this day. Cigarettes, I don't think so. Uh, we all knew smoking was the first step on Satan's slip and slide. Uh, so uh, we, didn't, we didn't go to the movies. Uh, nothing wrong with Disney films. My parents permitted Disney, but figured if we went to the theater, you know, to see the good stuff like Robin Hood, people might mistakenly think we were there to see the raunchy ones like Herbie. Uh, so it was kind of a, it was a touch and go. We just avoided the appearance of evil altogether. Like most kids my age, I was a huge um, Star Wars fan, and uh, I didn't actually see the movie, though, until I was about 15 years old. I read about the movie and based my adventures kind of on that and filled in the gaps and, you know, pretended in front of my friends. So I was a late bloomer, uh, even with sex. I don't fully recall the sex talk, how it went down, but my parents did give me a book to read with no pictures. Very clear about that. And I'd been to Sunday school most of my life, so I clearly understood the dangers of sex before marriage, which, you know, it leads potentially to dancing. 
Uh, I'm, I'm serious. You, you can't make this stuff up. The, the college I attended, a Christian school that was extremely robust academically, still had vestiges of legalism lane. As a freshman, you had to sign a pledge that said you'd abstain from the use of alcohol, tobacco, drugs, and dancing. But, you know, as you know, a straight white kid from a Christian bubble, you know, I was like, wow, not exactly a sacrifice. And I used it as an excuse at weddings. I'd be like, oh, I'd love to do the electric slide with you, but my hands are tied. I can't. I'm sorry. Now the pledge. I can't dance. Now some of you I see are nodding and smiling, and because that little walk down legalism lane brings back memories for you. Maybe you grew up in a similar environment. And don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining about my upbringing. My parents loved me unconditionally. That was never in question. And they still did me a real love, you know, for Christ and for God's word. It's part of what God used to make me who I am today. But it did skew a little bit towards legalism. You guys know what legalism is? You see the word legal or the law in there? Legalism is basically this, this approach that puts a high value on your moral behavior. In other words, Christians are defined by what they do and don't do. Christian men don't smoke or chew, and they don't go with girls who do. That may sound quaint, but you have to admit, honestly, religious checklist, it's a lot easier, isn't it? For one, you can figure out who's in the club based on do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do that. Don't smoke, don't swear, don't drink, and you'll be okay with God. If you're taking notes, legalism says you better keep the rules so that God will accept you. And we all know people who think religion is about following rules and regulations. The problem is that's not the good news that Jesus gave his life for. Somewhere, I don't know where it happened, between 33 AD and 2010, Christianity has become more defined by a behavioral code than by spiritual beliefs. And this, this is what Jesus slammed the Pharisees for. For Jesus, the kingdom of God was all about relationship, not rule, the condition of a person's heart, their motives, their attitude behind their actions. And that's why religious conservatives condemned Christ, because they looked at Jesus' network of friends, prostitutes, tax cheats, lepers, and the like, and they gasped, <gasps> he actually embraces rule breakers, and they seem to like him. In Matthew 11, verse 19, Jesus described the charge against him this way. He said, the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, here's a glutton, he eats too much, and a drunkard, he drinks too much, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, of course, if you were far from God and had made a moral mess of your life, this was about the best news you could hear, that God in the flesh had come to earth in order to draw close to ordinary sinners, people who ate and drank too much and, and listened to kiss. And Jesus didn't condemn them. Instead, he was the guy who said, actually, let him who is without the first uh, sin cast the first stone. No, just stone everybody. And this is why conservative people killed Christ. We must never lose sight of that. The problem is that legalism has a twin brother, and his name is license. If legalism is about keeping the rules... License is about finding a loophole, okay? It means I have a license to do whatever I want to do because God accepts me, which, of course, is not the truth either, is it? Jesus paid a high price to draw close to those sinful people and offer forgiveness. It literally cost him his what? His life on the cross. And see, when we look at the cross, the center of our faith, where we believe Christ took my sin and your sin on his back. I want to visualize this for you, Leanne. All of our moral failings, when we look at that, and we think of the cross, great, I'm forgiven. Now I'm free to do as I please. Then we haven't really understood the horror 
of what Jesus took on, have we? See, when a man is taken outside the gates of a city, whipped until his flesh is torn open and has spikes nailed through his hands and a spear thrust in his side, when God comes down in person, suffers and dies a criminal's death, we actually realize sin is, well, it's really serious. It's serious enough to die for. And Christ shed his lifeblood to forgive our sins. So we don't take casually and say, well, I guess I can go ahead and do whatever I want. That's sloppy agape. Agape is the word, the Greek word, for the love of God. And while God is love, it's not some wishy-washy sentimental love that says, oh, you naughty kids, I forgive you. It is a fierce and horrible love that says, I'll die for what you've done because I love you this much. That's what the cross is saying. So let's be clear what we're talking about. Neither legalism nor license are the gospel of Christ. Jesus offers a third way, the way of radical love. This is the filter through which Christ approached the world. And here's, how, here's the deal. I want to show you how this works and then apply it to these practical questions you're asking. I call this the grace and truth principle. You can see this in your notes. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, what are grace and truth exactly? If you hung around liquid at all, you've probably seen, you know, our army of volunteers wearing T-shirts on the front. You see this on the front. Grace plus truth. And in fact, they are two sides of the same coin. In fact, some of the pastors here at liquid have tattoos. You've seen this. In fact, pastors, it was Mike and Dave, each have a similar one tattooed on their right wrist. Have you seen it? Here's a photo. I actually have a close-up. Check this out. And if you look at it right side up, it reads grace. Upside down, it reads truth. Kind of cool, right? It's called an ambigram. It's one word, twin meanings, depending on how you look at it. Two sides of the same coin. And each of our pastors got that tattoo based on John 1.17, which, by the way, if you're a legalist, that crosses wires for you. Because you're like, a pastor with a tattoo? <clears throat> but wait a minute, it's based on a Bible verse. Oh, you know, what is that? But the, the idea here is that the Old Testament was all based around the law, given through Moses, the, the Ten Commandments. God, God, God's people knew how to tell right from wrong very easily. God spelled it out. Do this, don't do that. Do honor your parents. Don't commit adultery. Do observe the Sabbath. Don't commit murder. But in the New Testament, when Christ arrives on the scene, we're introduced to this new paradigm, a new filter through which we're to judge our decisions. The law was given through Moses, but what? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's why those are our core values as a church. I will leave our little shirt out here as a reminder. Grace and truth. What's grace? Simply put, it is the radical love and outrageous forgiveness of God that says no matter what you've done or wherever you've been, I love you anyway with an everlasting love. It doesn't matter how bad you've blown it. I am willing to cancel every sin, every failure, from murder to gossip, I forgive you through Christ's sacrifice. His blood, that was for you. So I accept you as my son or daughter. That's grace. That's why we're here. It's why we call ourselves Christians, Christians, little Christs. Because we realize no ordinary man or woman can keep the law perfectly, so we embrace Christ, his grace, as, as, as our Savior. And here's the deal. Grace is the great distinctive of the Christian faith. If someone ever asks, like, what, what makes Christianity different from any world religion? Because Christianity isn't about what we do for God, but what about God did for us. It's not what we do, it's what Christ's done. Buddhists have karma, right? What goes around comes around. 
Islam has 12 pillars. You've got to follow this list of rules in order to earn God's acceptance, and if you don't, there's, there's punishment waiting. Only Christianity dares make the claim that God's love comes down to us free of charge, no strings attached, through no effort of our own. We simply receive it. Ephesians 2 says, For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourself. It's what? It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. This is good news for everyone. But did you notice there's a hard truth contained in here? That we're all sinners. Some bigger than other, perhaps, but it doesn't matter. God doesn't grade on the curve, right? We all fall short of the glory of God, and for that, we deserve death. That's hard truth, that God is a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. And because of our sin against him, left to ourselves, we die. Not just physically, but spiritually. So here's, watch, here's truth. We deserve the cross. Here's grace. So Christ died for us. The cross is where grace and truth literally intersect. And it's a brand new paradigm in the Testament. As John put it, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Neither legalism nor license, but life-changing love. Two sides of the same coin, and the world was never the same. Now, how do these concepts apply to us? Specifically when it comes to these questions of moral judgment. You know, how, how, do, how do we live now? Because some of these questions, honestly, are clear-cut, right? Like the, the Old Testament, we know, kind of condemns out, uh, sex outside of marriage, and Jesus upholds that. He says, oh, even if you look at someone lustfully, it's like, oh, man, wow, that, that's immorality. Other issues are not so clear-cut. They're more neutrally, you know, gray. Like Ozzy Osbourne had long hair, and so does Jesus. Does that make listening to Black Sabbath a sin? You know, like, or, or is that you know, morally neutral? Is it amoral? The, the Bible condemns drunkenness. We know that, but not wine. So can a Christian crack a cold one in good conscience? <laughs> the Bible condemns witchcraft, but we all go see Harry Potter anyway. <laughs> you know, is that okay? And what about Halloween? I heard that was Satan's birthday. Now, you know, what, what are these issues? And this is where we have to learn to apply this grace and truth in action in real life situations. Not surprisingly, guess who our best example is on this? Jesus himself who incarnated it. If you open your Bibles, turn to John chapter 8. You're going to see the famous encounter Jesus had with a woman caught in adultery. And just, you know, quickly just go over this. The Pharisees caught this woman cheating with a married man, and in legalists that they were, they dragged her before Jesus and they said, in the law, Old Testament, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they were using this as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. In essence... The religious conservatives, the police, caught a girl named Snooky and Flagrante. And Jewish law said Snooky should be stoned. And this is like old school being stoned, not modern stoned. And uh, basically the Pharisees are like, rock party. But Jesus, now watch this, he bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. So, Here's the truth, Jesus said. You're actually all sinners. She's immoral, but you're judgmental. So who wants to take the first shot? And at that, those who heard him began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And verse 10 says, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And here you see grace and truth in action, perfectly balanced. On the one hand, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. 
God doesn't condemn this woman. That's the liberating power of grace. On the other, he says what? Go now and leave your life of sin. The difficult demands of truth. And together, Jesus balances them in perfect love. See, either one of these, without the other balancing it out, leads us down a false path. Watch how this works. I will do the math for you. For instance, if you just take truth, you go by the law and what the, just the, the Bible says in minus grace without it being tempered by the love of God, that's how you get legalism. If Jesus just goes by the law, what happens? Time to stone Snooky. <laughs> All truth, no grace, which makes God a monster. And sadly, that's what a lot of people think God is like. Just a bloodthirsty, angry, judgmental deity obsessed with punishing people. Jesus upholds the truth. He actually says, you're a sinner and your life needs to change. But notice, what does he first say? I don't condemn you. He leads with grace. He leads with grace. He extends radical love to this woman. He actually steps between her and her accusers and disarms the legalists in a master stroke. So truth without grace is legalism. On the other hand, grace without truth is what? License. I can do whatever I want because no one condemns me. See, if Jesus only says, I don't condemn you, the woman might rightly assume, oh, well, I guess God doesn't care about casual sex, breaking up a marriage, or whatever in God's eyes. It's license. I can do whatever I want because God accepts me. You know what? Today, a lot of people distort Jesus that way. They say, oh, he's so loving and tolerant to the point where anything goes. I'm free to do what I want, even if it's a sin. Well, Jesus forgives me anyway. That's sloppy agape. In Christ, none of us have a license to do whatever we want. We can't eliminate one. It's not freedom. That's tyranny. And you've probably met carnal Christians, even in this church, right, who kind of live lives of, of moral compromise. There's like no difference between them and the rest of the world. They sleep around, they get wasted, smoke pot, talk coarsely, whatever, live with greed, lust, and jealousy like the rest of the world, and assume, well, it's okay because Jesus never condemns anybody. The truth is, Jesus doesn't condemn, but he does judge, doesn't he? He says, go now and leave your life of sin. In other words, he's saying, woman, I accept you as you are, but I love you too much to leave you this way. I have a better vision for your life than sexual brokenness. And I can give you power to change my life in you, actually, to fill the gaps of your loneliness. Again, Christ perfectly leads with grace first to the woman in combination with what? Truth. And the result is life-transforming love. That's grace plus truth. Without being legalistic on one hand, nor licentious on the other, he is instead perfectly loving. And that's what grace and truth produce. Love. Love that is truly faithful to God's holiness, to the truth of Scripture, and yet actually shows grace to those who fall short of it. In the Old Testament, it was all about keeping the law, and in the New Testament, Jesus upheld it, and he took it one step further, saying the, word is summed, the law is summed up in one word. What? Love. The law is love. Love God, love others, the rest is details. We can talk it out. And that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to have a dialogue about some of these lifestyle questions so you can learn to apply this law of love in each area. And now understand something. I could give you like quick and easy, you know, black and white answers for some of these questions. Okay, I, I, we, could, we could just do that and some of you would love it because you want a simple answer. I want yes or no, but I want to teach you to think for yourself about this because none of these questions exist in a vacuum. Not everyone is black and white or has like this little soundbite answer. Legalists love soundbites, yes? So Tim, can a Christian drink, don't dodge a topic, yes or no? Uh, rap music, uh, hell yeah or yeah, hell, 
<laughs> uh, and I, I, I get why. Checklist religion is easier. But each of these has to be viewed through this lens of other-centered love as Jesus envisioned it. Does this draw me closer to God? Do I love God more because of this? Does this actually increase my capacity for loving others well and considering them above myself? Or does my Christian freedom make them stumble? Love for God and love towards others, this is always the deciding vote. So when somebody, you know, asks, uh, you know, what are, here's what someone said, what are the biblical boundaries for dating? How far can I take things with my girlfriend? I'm like, the answer is, wrong question, bro. <laughs> how far can I take it with my girlfriend? Does this sound like a guy who is wrestling with how to really love, honor, and respect his girlfriend with the love of Christ, or like some dude just desperate to find a loophole? <laughs> That, that's someone whose default is what? Is license. Like, how far can I push the limits without formally sinning? See, most of us skew one way or the other. I'd be curious what you do. Are you more of a legalist or are you more skewed to license? Some just want the truth so we can nail people over the head, and others we like grace because sloppy agape means I can do whatever I want and rationalize it. Neither's love grounded in grace and truth. Both are focused on me, not Christ, certainly not others. So, with all that in mind, I'm going to invite Pastor Dave out here with a bunch of your questions. And uh, we're going to do this kind of as a Q&A just to show you how you apply grace and truth in some of these issues of conscience. Hey, Tim. How are you doing? All right. Glad. Thank you for coming I, out, Dave. You've got tattoos. I just want to start by saying my tattoo looks so much better than Pastor Mike's. This, it is sharp. It's <laughs> way better than his. It is very sharp. Now, you actually have more than the grace truth tattoo. What's the other one you got there? What is that? Uh, yeah, this other one says Chaladon, which is actually a combination of my three daughters' names, Chelsea, Ella, and Jordan. Okay. And uh, that came about when they were, when they were a lot littler. Uh, we used to sit on Chelsea's bed at night and I would make up stories for them and I used to tell this story about a princess, Chaladon, who had attributes of each of my little girls. And um, so they grew up with knowing these stories about this Princess Chaladin. So that's what that one... So it's actually out of your heart for your little girls. My love for my little girls. Shame on you for judging him, those yes. of you who are like pastor with tattoos. That's awful. Okay, what's up? Well, let's start, let's start with tattoos. Um, okay. What does God think about tattoos? Uh, the, big, the big hullabaloo about tattoos, by the way, just if some of you are like, I don't even get why God would be upset with that, is in Leviticus, uh, an Old Testament book, actually says, do not put tattoo marks on yourselves. And here, here's the deal, just think of it this way. In the Old Testament, there are two types of laws, right? You have the moral law, that's the Ten Commandments, and then you had the purity laws. That was basically what was added so the Jewish people could distinguish themselves as a nation. So it's like the kosher laws. You know, like don't eat meat, don't eat bacon, things like uh, don't cut the hair on the sides of your head. You see that today with Orthodox Jews. Don't work on the Sabbath. You violated that as well, the hair, all of it. Uh, so that's the purity code. Now, today, Christians don't abide by those. We put that aside. We cut our hair. We eat bacon, some more than others. And uh, the purity laws, think about it, the purity laws, right? I mean, even forbid, like, one of them says you may not handle the skin of a dead pig or, or work on the Sabbath. And you realize, were that enforced today, the whole Super Bowl would be in question. Mm. Uh, so, so think about this in a way. When Christ came, he set aside the purity laws, but he upheld the moral law. And those are the universal kind of codes of Judeo-Christianity, thou shalt not murder, steal, lie, commit adultery. In fact, Jesus takes them one step higher. He's like, it's not just murder. If you mutter idiot in your heart, you actually are murdering your brother in, in your heart. If you think about a woman lustfully, it's like adultery. Okay, with Jesus, it's always about what? The heart, mm. our inner motivation. Mm. So on issues of morality, he affirms the moral code. That's black and white. But the purity code, 
Don't work on the Sabbath. Don't get a tattoo or ink on your skin. Jesus intentionally overturned. In fact, he always had a great way of kind of upsetting the religious conservatives, right? He healed people on the Sabbath. He touched the lepers. You didn't get more unclean, the AIDS victims of the day. He went to parties with prostitutes, unclean people. And it was his way of showing God was actually introducing a new covenant where followers of Christ now have freedom of conscience to things that were formerly declared sinful or unclean. So stuff like getting a tattoo became morally neutral in God's eyes. So there are now areas of Christian conscience where we have freedom to exercise discernment. So tattoos, body piercing, uh, plastic surgery, these are all areas of choice and freedom for Christians now. Mm-hmm. Well, one, one woman wrote, can a Christian get a boob job? All right. Okay. Wow. Good question. It's a great question. Actually, but notice the progression here. This is kind of interesting because it's one thing to write, get a tattoo. It's another, get, you know, get your ears pierced, whatever. It's another to get implants. Mm. And I'm not judging that except to say that's part of our culture that you have to inspect kind of the motivation behind that. Right? A lot of women and men in our culture feel pressured to kind of pursue that out of vanity or maybe even a sense of physical inadequacy, like who they are or how God made them isn't enough. So they're not satisfied with the love of Christ that says, actually, you're perfect as you are. You don't need to change a thing for me to accept and love you. You are perfectly lovable as is. That's grace. That's, the, that's how God sees us. It's grounded in being deeply loved in Christ. And so Obviously, like plastic surgery for, you know, medical reasons is one thing, but elective surgery kind of, you know, solely for cosmetic enhancement to make ourselves more attractive to other people, that's another. And that's something like all Christ followers have to wrestle through. That means we pray through it, we talk with our life group, we reflect on it, we ask God for his guidance. Okay, so let's uh, stick with that progression. You mentioned alcohol. Is, Is that morally neutral? There's a guy that wrote, let me get this straight, drinking beer is not a sin, but getting drunk is. What about... Tipsy. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's, you, which way does he skew? Uh, legalistic or is he looking for a loophole here? With issues of Christian freedom, there's always a progression, isn't there? I mean, the Bible, let me be very clear about this, the Bible does not condemn drinking. Wine was a normal first century part of life as it is today in Europe or Italy. And, and Jesus' first miracle was turning water to wine, which he would have been a rock star in Napa. Okay, let's just acknowledge that. However, the Bible is very clear that that getting drunk or drinking to excess is indeed sin. And here's why. Ephesians 5.18 puts it this way. It says, do not get drunk on wine. And you're like, okay, why? Which leads to what? Debauchery. Instead, here's the alternative. Be filled with the capital S spirit. Notice the progression. It's like getting drunk leads to debauchery. In other words, more immorality. And if you've spent any time at the Jersey Shore, you've seen this play out. What happens when people drink too much? What, what happens? Do they become more Christ-like? They're kinder, they're more patient, more authentically loving. Not like, I love you, man. I mean, like, authentically, sincerely loving. No, they may be bolder, they may be funnier, more outrageous, or angrier, mm. or abusive and neglectful. So mm. a, a guy gets drunk, and then all of a sudden he gets in a fight. A gal gets drunk, and she goes too far in a hookup. This, this, is, this is not love. Remember, it's always about God's love, being filled with the Spirit of Jesus, letting Him have more and more control of us. And it's very hard, honestly, to allow God's Spirit to control you when, you know, wine and spirits have dulled your capacity. Does this make sense? Yeah, so there's a progression. Yeah, that, actually, that's important. The other thing is kind of this progression issue. Mm-hmm. And if you look at it, you know, while it's a matter of Christian freedom to enjoy a beer, wine, again, moderation, God invented wine, it's ours to enjoy. We all know people who are predisposed towards addiction. So, so what starts with, with a person, you know, having a toast, a glass to celebrate, all of a sudden it's, you know, one or two, or maybe three or four after work, 
to relieve the stress or kind of numb out the pain, and then suddenly I can't go a day without having a drink. And mm. now you're enslaved. That's what sin is. It's enslavement. Mm. So when we come to rely on things other than God to bring us peace and comfort, the point is God would much rather fill you with his spirit to deal with stress than to have you, you know, crawl in a bottle of booze and hide. Mm. Booze is a crutch. We have Christ. I have a number of friends who are alcoholics, and it's like totally changed my approach to thinking about drinking. Well, how so? Uh, do you drink? Yeah, uh, yeah. Typically, Colleen, I will have a glass of wine. We go out to dinner or something like that. We go to a ball game, barbecue, have a beer. No problem with that. Again, that would have been scandalous to say in the church that I grew up in. I would have been run out of town on a rail. But here's the rub. Here's the rub. I'm 100% fine with having a drink or not having one if it will be more helpful to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, so what do you mean by that? Again, this whole, this is not wishy-washy love. The, the love of Christ is other-centered, which means how will my affections, how will my actions affect other people, my, my brothers or sisters? So for instance, if I go out to drink with one of my friends who's in recovery, imagine that. I'm not going to order a drink. Why not? Not because I can't order a drink, but because it's not the loving thing to do for them. It's not respectful. That's an area of weakness or vulnerability for my brother or sister, so I'm not going to like flaunt my freedom so it becomes a stumbling block to their staying sober. Does that make sense? Yeah, so the, the grace-truth thing actually shifts our response based on how it's going to affect other people. Exactly. Yeah. There's a, I think I put this in your notes. There's a helpful passage mm-hmm. in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 10 where basically the early Christians were struggling like, with issues of conscience, and it was whether or not to eat meat. They were like, vegans or not? Not really. Uh, it was about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And, and you guys know this. We went over at Corinth Party Central. It was that guy who was sleeping with his mom. They were actually getting drunk on communion wine. That's how they rolled. This was Jerry Springer's church. And uh, Corinthian culture was a cesspool. There are some parallels with ours. Uh, and in Corinth, here's the deal. Most of the meat you bought that the butcher had had been previously sacrificed to idols, to gods and goddesses, pagan, like Aphrodite or something like that. And they you know, burn half of it on the altar, put the other half you know, in stop and shop, and you could buy it. Now, imagine you're a first century Jew who just become a Christian. First off, you've never even eaten meat with blood in it, so this is a big deal as part of the purity laws. Secondly, now you're given this meat that's sacrificed to idols, not Christ. So this is a big deal. Can or can't we eat meat offered to idols? That was their like FAQ. Mm. And in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul like, hits his head on and basically says, look guys, now that you know Jesus Christ, the one true God, you are free to enjoy whatever you want to eat or drink. God made everything through Christ and for Christ. You're free to enjoy it. But then he says, be careful, however that the exercise of your freedom does not become a what? A stumbling block to the weak. Because if someone with a weak conscience sees them eating this meat, they might have assumed, oh, that's, that's idolatry. They're, they're not as free in this area as you are. Does that make sense? Mm. Some, some Corinthian Christians mm. simply couldn't even look at meat without recalling their idol worship of the past. And so Paul said, hey, even though you're free in Christ, the loving and sensitive thing to do might be to abstain. Love for your weaker brother should limit your freedom. So mm. this is a higher thought. While all Christians have freedom in these morally neutral areas, the highest sign of maturity mm. is to actually sacrifice your freedom so that another believer won't stumble in their faith. Okay, so uh, does this mean we're just... Uh, is this just about avoiding the appearance of evil? No, that, not in any legalistic sense, mm. okay? Remember, it, it is, this is not about outward appearances. It's about inner heart motivation. It's about the love Christ has for us. So we want to show that love to others. And as Christian says, build one another up in love. Strengthen each other's faith. Don't tear it down. Mm. That's why Paul says, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, fine, I'll never eat meat again. 
I'll be a vegan <laughs> so that I will not cause him to fall. That's love. Paul's like, I could eat meat, but I'm willing to limit my freedom because my love for my brothers and sisters in Christ is greater than my license. That's, that's why I don't drink around friends who are in recovery. It's actually out of love for them. I'm trying to like build them up and encourage mm. them. It's not an area of freedom in their life. That's okay. No judgment. Grace. We show grace. Just the opposite. To, to me, the thing is, the tip-off is always this. I always find this. When people skew to the extreme, when somebody says, you know, I don't go within a thousand feet of a liquor store and I won't, I won't even look at a beer commercial, I, I know they've kind of like had some sort of bad experience here with alcohol. Or if it's licensed, no, man, I don't care. Who knows, man, let's do Jaeger shots for communion. They can deal with it, you know. They, they, they're guilty, not only of the sin of drunkenness, but a worse one. It's a failure to love and consider others ahead of yourself. Make sense? Yeah, so it's not about passively avoiding evil. It's about actively choosing love. Right. The, the law is love. Yeah. Paul, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he actually says, nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. So, whatever and whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the what? The glory of God. That's love. Limiting your freedom for the sake of someone else. That's what Christ did. He limited his freedom for our sake. And so we put others' interests ahead of our own. That's a sign of maturity. Mm. It's when people, you know, flaunt their freedom, honestly. It's not freedom. It's just being a jerk, okay? Likewise, when people try to, you know, force their scruples on others. It's not morality. Now legalism might be a stumbling block. So remember, Legalism and license are like always dead ends. It's the love equation, grace and truth of Christ that leads to actual authentic freedom. Okay, enough about alcohol. What about smoking pot or smoking cigarettes in gen like just generally cigarettes? Uh, sm smoking pot's the e easy one. Uh, first off, it's illegal. Uh, <laughs> you, don't, you don't need Jesus to tell you that. That's like Obama's call uh, at this point. It's against the, the law, not Moses' Uncle Sam's in that place. And, and there's, there's a guiding principle in the Bible about that. You know, we're to obey the authorities mm. that God's put in charge over us. Unless it's a violation of some, like, basic moral principle of Christianity, we're actually supposed to obey the government. Uh, you don't see a lot of, you know, picketers out there with, like, you know, Christians for chronic, you know, kind of. It's not, it's not a morally neutral area. Like, all, you know, narcotics, addictive, destructive properties, whatever, they're, they're not just immoral, they're illegal. So, now just time out. I get this, Okay. Because the generation below you and me, honestly, fires up. They light up, toke up all the time. I get it. And they're, they're like, but you know what? People do more damage with binge drinking than an occasional joint. Mm -hmm. I would simply ask, why is that so important to you? Mm. Is it possibly an idol in your life? In other words, is this so important a means of escape or, or numbing out or avoiding maybe some more painful issues? Mm. Because that's, that is a failure of love, to actually rely on a crutch instead of Christ. It's actually seeking peace and comfort in a bong, which is a false substitute for being filled with the spirit. It goes back to that idolatry thing. That's smoking pot. <laughs> okay, so that's pot. What about cigarettes? What about smoking <laughs> All cigarettes? All, all right. I can, I, can, I can think of one benefit. You'll probably see Jesus earlier. Uh, that would be my... <laughs> I, don't, I don't have condemnation for believers who smoke. An argument can be made you know, that your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, so you should take care of it. But... You know, that's just as applicable to food as, you know, tobacco. I mean, gluttony, as someone mentioned, epidemic in our culture. And us Christians, we love our potlucks, don't we? Mm. And a lot of evangelicals are supersized. So uh, if you're going to bash smokers, you might as well sharpen the blades for the fatties too. Uh, by the way, this is an interesting tidbit I came across in research. This is hilarious. 71% of U.S. pastors admit to being overweight by 30 pounds or more. 
And I, I came across, I was like, well, that answers the question why you never hear a sermon about gluttony. So there you go, whoever asked that. <laughs> Just sit up straight. Just sit up so straight now. <laughs> that would never be me. <laughs> what about uh, movies and music? Can Christians listen to rap music or heavy metal or watch an R-rated film? I, again, not yes or no, it depends. Think critically. Mm. Scripture says, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, excellent, praiseworthy, think about such things. This does not describe a Quentin Tarantino movie. Exactly, does it? <laughs> but the thing is, we can't get all legalistic and come up with these crazy rules like, you know, keep out the corruption. Christians tend to be very naive about the arts. Can we just say this? As mm-hmm. if, like, all R-rated movies are bad and PG are pretty good. There's, like, a world of difference between Schindler's List which is rated R, okay, in which I've seen like over 20 times. It is one of the most powerful depictions of Christian themes of grace, redemption, forgiveness. Mm. Big difference between that and dinner for schmucks, right? (laughs) PG-13. You you can't go by ratings. You actually have to engage your mind and think critically before buying a ticket or going to a show or whatever. Again, the law is love. Does this affirm the the grace and the truth of Christ? Does it uplift humanity or does it actually just Mm. celebrate sin and drag people through the mud? Like, like we joke about, you know, 50 Cent or Eminem or whoever, um, but it's like you listen to that and you seriously, like, does, does calling women bitches and hoes, does that, is that going to increase my love and respect for women in the world? Mm. I, I may sound like an old fogey here, I get that. But you've got to limit your intake to this stuff. In, in my day, it was GNR, it was Guns N' Roses. Uh, we would crank that before hockey games because it would get us angry and violent, okay? Music has that power. Music, TV, video games, horror films... All that stuff shapes our attitudes in a subterranean way and how we view the world and others. And it's not typically towards the love of Christ. It can get corrosive pretty quick. Okay, so how do you filter that as a parent? Right, so, okay, here's a, here's a good example. So my little girl Chase, right, she turns eight and she gets a karaoke machine. Thank you, Aunt Diane. Uh, <laughs> and she loves this thing, but it's mostly classics like R-E-S-P-E-C-T, Aretha Franklin, pretty tame stuff. And uh, so the other day, she's, she's singing karaoke downstairs, and I hear this thing, and it's this country song by Carrie Underwood called Before He Cheats. You anyone know this song? It, it's, this country, <laughs> it's a country song about a girl who gets cheated on, breaking all the cliches, right? <laughs> And, and, and it's, it's innocent enough. It describes, the chorus describes how this girl gets revenge. And uh, Carrie Underwood, who's a, who's a Christian, sings, she says, uh, it goes, I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive. I, took, I carved my name into his leather seats. I wrote this down. <laughs> I took a Louisville slugger to both headlights, slashed a hole in all four tires, and maybe next time he'll think before he cheats. It's, sorry. <laughs> It's catchy. It's catchy. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's catchy. Not exactly Christ-like, is it? It's like, what, like whatever happened to like love your enemies, <laughs> you know, forgive those who hurt you. Mm. So I listen to my some chases downstairs, and I hear her going, bash a hole in all four heads, you know. And I, I go down there, and I pull the plug. I'm like, we're not, we're not going to sing a song celebrating vengeance. And she's like, why? I'm like, because the gospel's about grace. And she's like, huh? Just play Aretha. So it. it it cuts, it cuts both ways is what I'm saying. It's not about demonizing like, you know, gangster rap or banning country music, though if I were writing the Bible, I would. It's about, <laughs> it's about paying attention as a parent yeah. and actually saturating your kids with, with the gospel, the grace and the truth. It's very countercultural. So then do you only let her listen to Amy Grant and other <laughs> Christian music? 
She, no, she, <laughs> listens, she listens, you know, she listens to high school musical, which I think is a sin, no judgment, just uh, because, you know, it's a little more age appropriate for her. And again, the idea is we don't want her in a bubble. Yeah. We actually want her conversant with yeah. culture. And we're trying to just be proactive as parents. So, so we're, like, we're like, we're not singing when he cheats, sweetheart. And, and it was great because she says, why? And I was like, because, sweetheart, in life, when someone hurts you, and they will, we don't take revenge, actually. As followers of Jesus, we actually forgive them like Jesus forgave us. We, we don't dig a, dig a key into the side of their car. We, we show grace. What's grace? It's like that turn the other cheek thing. So leverage it as a teaching moment is the idea. Okay, great. Okay, this person writes, I heard someone say Christians should avoid anything with pagan roots, like Harry Potter, which is wizardry, yoga, which has its roots in Eastern um, meditation, or Halloween, which came out of the Druid tradition. What do you think of those things? Yeah, it, I mean, I've heard that before. It obviously strikes you maybe a little bit legalistic, uh, because first off, when I look at this stuff, I'm like, these things have become so far removed from their pagan roots that it's, that it's, more than, it's just more like entertainment. It's not spiritually influential. Unfortunately, kind of like the way Christmas has been removed from its Christian roots, uh, you know, it, it's kind of, and I doubt too many kids are like going to fall into the occult if you read Harry Potter. But if you're a parent and have concerns, I got an idea, read it with them. This can be an amazing moment for that because some of the stuff you can actually use as a tool. Um, yoga, when you think about like that stuff and, and you think about like the gluttony epidemic in, in church, any exercise, I assume, in some ways is better than none. I have a friend, though, this is kind of interesting. She does what she calls Christian yoga. I'm like, what's that? She's like, well, actually, instead of like chanting or meditating, that kind of stuff, we read scripture and do scripture memorization between, I guess, down dog positions or whatever that is. <laughs> so, so she's actually taking something with Eastern roots and mm. repurposing it as a tool in her Christian walk, which I was like, that's mm. pretty innovative. Same thing with Halloween. Um, that, that is personally just bias. That's one of my like, favorite holidays. I loved dressing up as a kid, and we still do that. We go trick-or-treating as a family. Uh, again, that is, that's an issue of freedom. There's Christian mm. conscience in there. It's your call. Uh, Pastor Rich, though, he told me, I love this. He turns Halloween into like kind of an evangelism opportunity. He says, actually, you know what we do at my house? He's like, we buy extra candy. We put a bounce house in our front yard, invite the neighbors over, and he goes, we, we serve a mold cider to all of our neighbors and invite them to church. And I was like, now that is conversant with culture, trick-or-treat evangelism. I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> hmm. Well, I have a bunch more questions here, but yep. I think we're just about out of time. I've got a, I've got a lot here on sex, masturbation. Have you got any thoughts on that? <laughs> Talk to your campus pastor. No. Uh, just a little... Seriously, we're, we're due for a series, I think, on relationships, and I'll, I'll try to tackle those in some more detail there. I want to give you like a sound bite real quick on that stuff. Okay, so the only other question that I have for you is, yeah. will you pray for us? Absolutely. Let's do that. Let's pray together, okay, guys? God, thank you. Thank you for a place we can discuss these things, Lord, um, with grace, anchored in truth, God. We want to be people who live in the tension. And so I pray that right now. I pray, Lord, uh, even as people in the congregation or, or watching, listening via podcast online, Lord, whatever issues they're sorting through, I pray, Lord Jesus, would you make your truth just kind of this, this clarion uh, bell, Lord, that they see the beauty of the cross, of Christ, Father, of you coming down to us. And then, Lord, let that grace inform all of our thinking. May we be driven by love for you and, Lord, radical love and sensitivity towards our Christian brothers and sisters. Father, we don't want to be legalists. You've set us free from that, God. But we also don't want to live licentiously like everybody else, Lord. We don't want to be Corinth. 
We want to be liquid. Who you called us to be right now, living in this time and this moment, as your people who love you. So Jesus, I ask that right now to fill your people with your Holy Spirit. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Audio. If this message has touched you, we'd love to know how. Just email Pastor Dave Adamson at churchonline at liquidchurch.com. For more information and content, or to connect with our worldwide Liquid Church community, log on to liquidchurchonline.com.